Welcome, everybody. Um, my name is Cheney Ryan. I'm a, a fellow of the program on ethics, law, and armed conflict, as well as, for the other part of the year, a professor of law at the University of Oregon. Uh, it is our great privilege to have Professor Dean Chatterjee here um, today, who is a distinguished professor at the law school at uh, the University of Utah. Uh, and uh, who, among his other accomplishments, has just published a book on the ethics of preventive war. Um, I should say it's a special treat for me to introduce Dean. Uh, I've known him for many years. Um, in America, some of us date things by relating to which country America had invaded most recently. Uh, and I met Dean somewhere in between the invasion of Granada and the invasion of Panama, so that was quite a while ago. Uh, but Dean has always been someone who I've greatly admired as someone who not only works on war, but works on a lot of other issues too, including global poverty, uh, global justice, etc. Uh, Dean will talk to us for 25 or 30 minutes, and then uh, David Roden, also from ELAC, will do some comments, and then we will follow that with discussion from everybody. Dean. <clears throat> Thank you, Jane, for this very kind introduction. My voice is almost gone, but hopefully it's still audible. I've been traveling a lot, and the last leg of my flight had been a long one. And that's when something must have happened. But hopefully, if I speak slowly, you'll be able to hear me. So that's why, based on uh, David's suggestion, I made my uh, draft much shorter uh, so that it won't require non-stop boring reading with this voice, but interruption with more informal chatting and more room for uh, David to respond, Jenny to comment, and of course I'm eager to hear from you. Uh, my book, The Ethics of Preventive War, uh, just came out, uh, got released in the United States last week, and maybe here in this country uh, two weeks before that. And this is an important book on this current big controversy on the permissibility of preventive, uh, preventive war. Uh, of course, the other one that came out not that long uh, ago is Henry, Henry and David's uh, book on preemption and prevention. That's quite well known, of course. So here, of course, I'll be citing Henry uh, on something that you'll get to see. But basically, what I'm planning to do in a short, focused format instead of going through all the details of all the scholars and authors and what they have said, uh, how they mm, have been uh, developing their ideas, where their, their flaws are and all that, that's going to be extremely boring and tedious. And for that, of course, you can, you can read the ideas either in this book, in my writings, or in, uh, in, uh, in any other place. I will try to give you my response as to where I would like to take this debate on preventive war in view of uh, the current um, problems of international, <laughs> international law, ethics, and those issues. Uh, basically, how I see it is this. Uh, 
this idea of preventive war, there has been some talk that uh, due to the current uh, uh, nature of warfare in the 21st century, there is obviously the blurring of the dis distinction between preemption and prevention. And that made our attitude toward preventive war a bit more open, along with certain other things that I'll mention. But there has also been the other side that is getting more and more prominent, and I'm part of that, that side, which is that preventive war, its permissibility uh, allows more war and less peace. I don't want to make it just in the sort of a crass utilitarian sense as to what's wrong with prevent, prevent war. In case there is real big need for preventive war, we have to see how in a rather ethical and constrained manner perhaps we can leave some limited scope for that. I would like to show that even when we leave some limited scope for that, it can get out of control and out of hand very easily. And so what is the way to go about it? I would like to show that we have to devise some other ways where instead of preventive intervention, perhaps we should think of a different paradigm, which I have dubbed preventive non-intervention. Preventive non-intervention. And what exactly is that? It's part of my idea of this just peace theory. Just peace theory. That instead of starting from the just war paradigm, if we start with the just peace paradigm, we would not get to this routine mm, uh, uh, lead toward preventive intervention. Uh, it would be somewhere where we find that preventive intervention is getting almost, the need for that is getting almost redundant if we start with this just peace approach. What exactly is this approach? I would like to develop that a little bit here. Of course, uh, we enrich ideas on some of these issues for a long, long time, for the last 25, 30 years. We know how indebted we are to his ideas. Uh, David also is a critique of preventive war, and I have so much sympathy for his views. So hopefully between our two views, uh, our two sides, uh, something cohesive will emerge. So, I may have to sit down to take a look at this computer, but hopefully I'll be loud enough, loud enough that, that you'll be able to understand me. Okay, so, and I'll be stopping from time to time to, to make myself more clear. And the, the, cert, the certainty factor, the certainty factor of an imminent danger debated considerably in the just war tradition is now put to severe test in view, of, in view of the challenges of today's warfare. This, this, this uncertainty factor of an imminent danger. How do we measure it and when should we, when should we respond to it? Okay, so this, this, blurring, of the, the blurring, this blurring of the distinction between preemption and prevention in matters of peace and security seems to have contributed to a more open attitude toward preventive war. Scholars also 
point out that a permissive interpretation of preventive measures can be found in the later just war tradition of Grotius and Hobbes as part of reasonable self-defense and also in Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter pertaining to the Security Council in matters of international peace and security. That's one side which seems to claim that sovereignty and non-intervention might be the accepted norms in, inter in international law, but stipulated measures suggestive of preventive intervention are permissible with Security Council authorization, thus making preventive war legal under current, inter current international law. That's one side. In fact, even here, we have, of course, uh, controversy. For example, uh, David Rodin has famously claimed that even, forget about preventive war, even when it comes to preemptive war, it's not that clear that international law allows preemptive war even, forget about preventive war. So that's, of course, another issue. But the other side that tends to question this idea of a more uh, a broader latitude, more permissive attitude toward, an open attitude toward preventive war, uh, leading to a broader type of military engagement in the name of self-defense, and in rare cases uh, for the so-called rescue, rescue wars, uh, the humanitarian military intervention. Okay, the other side goes something like this, that the provision of preventive war in self-defense can get unduly interventionist, making the world less secure. The world needs a justice-based approach that addresses the underlying causes of global tension and crisis. Deprivation and humiliation. Deprivation and humiliation in our inequitable global order are the two chief reasons for tension and resentment, creating hostilities confronting deprivation through economic development and responding to humili humiliation through political recognition would go a long way toward mitigating tension and resentment and diminishing the global democracy deficit. I'll comment on that a bit more. Down the road. Studies have shown that non-military measures can be more effective in confronting terrorism than military actions, which may even prove to be counterproductive. Former United Nations <laughs> Secretary General Kofi Annan has famously observed that the ingredients of enduring global security lie not necessarily in deploying a nation's military force for global safekeeping, but 
more importantly, in promoting just development and comprehensive human rights. Well, let me sketch a bit of my view. I'm, of course, just skimming to all things so that I can get to the gist of it. My view, <clears throat> the countries should promote prevention in non-interventionist terms by relying on the soft power of diplomacy and collaboration. This is the path toward just peace, just peace, which I promote as the antidote to preventive war. If we do not place a principled premium on a, pro on a proactive and comprehensive non-interventionist policy of just peace, then the option of preventive war, however constrained, could gain undue legitimacy, leading to more war, not less. The idea of just peace relies on the global project of democratic governance and collaborative global political order. Let me just use one a recent example and application. Uh, a report from New York Times, a report from New York Times, Amos Yadlin, a former Amos Yadlin, a former chief of Israeli military intelligence, while commenting on a possible Israeli strike on Iran's nuclear facilities, notes, quote, Mr. Obama will have to shift the Israeli defense establishment's thinking from a focus on the zone of immunity, as he calls it, to a zone of trust, to a zone of trust, unquote. However, he construes, however, he construes the zone of trust in terms of preventive military intervention. He writes, quote, what is needed is an ironclad American assurance that, that if Israel refrains from acting in its own window of opportunity. So just, just in the interest of, uh, <coughs> of saving Professor Chatterjee's voice so that he can hopefully... Uh, <laughs> um, however, he construes the, uh, open quote, zone of trust, close quote, in terms of preventive military intervention. He writes, open quote, what is needed is an ironclad American assurance that if Israel refrains from acting in its own window of opportunity and all other options have failed, Washington will act to prevent a nuclear Iran while it is still within its power to do so, close quote. In contrast to this expanded just war military approach, my idea of just peace would construe the, quote, zone of trust in terms of preventive non-intervention. Creating a zone of trust among nations through a collaborative, proactive approach with an emphasis on recognition, dialogue, and assistance makes the need for preventive military measures obsolete. The gradual move in this direction is the move towards just peace, which I've dubbed, dubbed preventive non-intervention. 
Unlike the principled anti-interventionist arguments of the pacifist, this stance is anti-interventionist in a contingent sense. It is not necessarily against intervention per se, as, for instance, when intervention is the only option for preemptive reasons. It is against the way it, is usu- it usually takes place or against its feasibility in a complicated and interdependent world. But this limited provision for preemption, when construed on the premise of just peace, but not just war, as argued above, would not provide the moral mandate and the slippery transition to preventive military measures in the name of peace and security. In other words, a just peace approach sanctifies the traditional Augustinian just war ban on anticipatory military measures in a way that the premise of just war cannot. A just peace initiative allows measured military response, if needed, as the only option for self-defense or humanitarian reasons, either after an attack has occurred or when an attack is imminent, in the strictest sense of imminence, requiring interception when the offense is evidently irrevocable. I share Kant's critique of Grotius and Vattel's doctrine of just war and that the doctrines provide the pretext for justifying wars. My idea of global democracy as the foundation for just peace is quite similar to Kant's vision of of a global federation of democratic or republican states. Like a universal civil society held together for peace and collective security where each state retains all its sovereign rights except in the right to wage war. In such a justice-based global democracy that strives towards inclusion, participation, and empowerment, no member state would be considered an outlaw state, hence there would be no rogue states that can be targeted for preventive military strikes. This democratic global order would vastly increase the prospect of internal democratic reform within states in a peaceful manner, a peaceful, sorry, in a peaceful manner with initiatives generated by the states themselves because of the privilege of recognition and membership in the global body they would not like to compromise this position through a failure of granting democratic rights to citizens for inept states there would be help from a common pool of funds for development assistance and building stable institutions without coercive conditions attached in such a collaborative global order the rhetoric of military intervention for imposing democracy from without would ring hollow. Also, the idea of military strike against a group of subversive non-state actors in remote areas who are about to be shipping lethal virus for, re- for release in populated areas, Alan Buchanan's hypothetical scenario for justifying preventive intervention, would be an empty argument. If the actors are dem- domestic terrorists, then the question of intervention in a sovereign state does not arise. And if they are known foreign terrorists, then in a collaborative global order, the idea of intervention goes against the thrust of collaboration. There are numerous collaborative avenues for responding to such distant threats. Okay, let me make a few comments. Mm. I just did the mm. passage uh, to... Now let me comment a bit about some of the... Uh, ideas that we find in some of these authors. I did mention the idea of a rogue state. That's David Lubin. And David Lubin, he has been writing important stuff on preventive war. He's very much against the idea in general of preventive intervention. But he makes a rather small so he calls it, small exception of intervention uh, option in the case of a so-called rogue state. 
when there is imminent or obvious danger coming from that lawless state. Okay, now the problem is this. The global order is so tilted and so inequitable. It's very easy, as we know quite often, that powerful states or a coalition of powerful states can easily, for the sake of global hegemony, can target weaker states to, 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 to find ways to intervene there, to control them. It has been happening quite often. It can never happen the other way around, even though we know that it's not the case, that no type of threat happens from the point of view, from the side of the powerful states to the vulnerable states. But it's always uh, the case that it's the powerful states that target the vulnerable states, often in the name of, uh, with the rhetoric of rogue states. Now, the thing is this, when, even when it comes to terrorism, think about it, that's also a political rhetoric, a propagandistic political rhetoric. Why so? Well, think about it, when just a few powerful states control the rest of the world through their military power for the sake of getting global resources moving in their direction uninterrupted on their terms and they would like to maintain that status and privilege by even using military means if needed and without the United Nations Security Council approval if they find it necessary then the whole idea of who the terrorist states are and who, are the, who the rogue states are, that gets to be rather vague, as we know, uh, seems like it's a form of global terrorism that often the vulnerable states are held hostage by the power of the powerful states. Given this thing, then the question is that if Lubin, David Lubin, leaves open the provision of the rogue state, that doesn't end up being a very small exception, as you would like to put it. It could open up the room for all types of excuses for intervention. The way I wanted to show it here, that if we have this idea of preventive non-intervention, and down the road I explain that a little bit more, uh, in the sense of just peace, in a collaborative global order of inclusion, uh, discourse, understanding, and help, mutual help, then by definition the idea of a rogue state is not there. It's not just a fiat I'm using. I mean, naturally, rogue states happen when, as I mentioned at the beginning of this little uh, essay, when there is deprivation, uh, humiliation, mm, neglect, all that, once powerful and resourceful states tend to overcome some of these global inequity, then the whole idea of 
rogue states where they could be viewed as possible dangers doesn't, that doesn't quite arise in that sense. So that's David Lugin. Now, Alan Bicarnell is a, well, let me put it this way. Before I get to Alan Bicarnell, I'd like to also mention Michael Doyle and Michael Walzer. Michael Walzer, early on in his classic restatement of the just war doctrine, has rather blurred the idea of imminence in what is or what could be an imminent danger. So much so that often people say that that's an example perhaps of intervention rather than preemption. And yet Michael Walzer is extremely reluctant to call his idea interventionist. He would like to use the word preemption all through. So he might do that, but he has opened that way. And he of course has Gautiers and others to show that he has historical support when it comes to his understanding of the just for doctrine. But Michael Doyle, in his so-called jurisprudence, jurisprudence of prevention, a very carefully articulated doctrine of, 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 of those rare cases when we may really need to think of prevention because we just can't wait. And how could we do it so that something like the a fiasco of the Iraq war in the guise of the so-called Bush doctrine would not happen, he lays down quite a few procedural issues. He calls them both substantive and procedural, and he lists several wonderful points about the, 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 the extent of real danger, uh, international law, uh, United Nations Security Council, and all that. But he still leaves room for unilateralism if needed. But that also has to be, in his judgment, based on what he calls the jurisprudence of prevention, meaning a carefully construed need duly presented to the rest of the world that it was needed. That's why the country is going in that direction, based on this imminence immediate danger to its national security or massacre of some sort in a country where people are helpless. Now the point is this, the moment he goes in that direction, we understand his concern. That's the concern of some of these extremely well-meaning uh, international just for theorists, contemporary just for theorists, like Michael Doyle. David Lubin, and I'm getting to Alan Buchanan very shortly, where we see that they are caught in this conundrum, in this conundrum. On the one hand, we know that we cannot simply promote warmongering and making provision for preventive war has the inevitably, the inevitable direction of going in that direction. At the same time, 
There could be those occasions when, unless we act, the consequences could be so catastrophic that it would be a disaster. In fact, Michael Walzer early on talks about the case of uh, civilizational challenge to our community if we let something of the sort like the Nazi danger to the Allied forces happen. We have to respond when we need to. Now, the problem is this with Michael Doyle when he talks about assessing the severity of danger or finding that it truly passes the test of necessity and all that, who decides those things if there is a go-alone provision in it? Because as Michael Walzer himself famously said, when it comes to existential threat, there is no such thing as legality. So uh, it's a matter of, again, subjective and individual assessment. So a powerful nation, just as we have found all through, especially in recent times, with the Bush doctrine, even before then, and even after George Bush, some of the practice is still continuing, that what is happening is that uh, countries can, in the name of the global mandate needed for its own national security, can claim a global mandate for its policies. And once we move in that direction, then we get back to where we have been. And Michael Doyle, in fact, I have had long uh, conversation back and forth with him on that. And he is the one who wrote a wonderful endorsement of the book. And he nonetheless mentioned that, Dean, I understand you are fair, you are everything. But the reason I try to construe this Jewish prudence of prevention is precisely because of this conundrum, that we have to do something, otherwise things might get out of hand. But we have to do it in such a careful fashion that it would, it would be extremely limited. But he says that, D, you are not the first one. I've been routinely hearing that this has the seed to the potential for something much more drastic, as we have found in the Bush Doctrine. Even though it's the Bush Doctrine that he has in mind to make sure that it never happens again like that, like the Iraq War. And that direction is going. Now, with Alan Buchanan, it's interesting. He is coming from the perspective of global justice, not from the perspective of sovereign equality, sovereign equality that we find in Michael Walzer, that we find in David Lubin, that we find in uh, 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 Michael Doyle. Sovereign equality is a statist approach. Statist approach, it's not a globalist approach, it's not cosmopolitan. And there, it is state order that dictates the global policies. And we know it's, an, it's a very inequitable order. 
the statist order. And unfortunately, that's how things are in current international law. But Alan Buchanan gets into the deeper issues of global unrest. And there he brings in the ideas of human rights violations. He brings in the ideas of deprivation, inequity, all that. And he says that those things need to be addressed to come up with what he calls a, a theory of global justice. Now, what's the difference between sovereign uh, equality and global justice? Basically, it's this, as I just mentioned a little bit already, even when we have a world of sovereign equality, there could be inequity and human rights violations within states and a lot of resentment and all that too, within states. Whereas in a world where global justice is operative along the line of this just peace, it's a highly idealized theory, of course I'm presenting, then I'll contrast that with the other side and show, well, it's maybe idealized and maybe hard to really implement fully, but the other side is even harder to implement, and it has, has, it has had a track record of proven disastrous failure. Because given that, can't you do better? Which is also a lot less costly and more effective. So that's the direction I'm going. So, Alan Buchanan, even though he goes in the direction of just peace by promoting the idea of global justice. He does bring in this idea of a limited portion or provision for preventive intervention. Now, the problem is this, and that's where I cite him to show, he says that it doesn't have to be intervention necessarily to attack a country to intervene in some other sovereign places. But suppose in those cases we find those non-state actors, rogue actors, about to ship a little virus into some populated area for their misguided ideas, what can we do? Well, my idea was that in a collaborative global governance, if we no, they are known terrorists, and if they happen to be in our own country, then the question of preventive intervention by definition doesn't arise because we are not going to go any other country. But if it's in some other country, and if they're known terrorists, they have to be, that's his idea, that we know that they're about to do that, that in a collaborative global order, there are, there are numerous opportunities to respond to that in a fashion where just one-sided uh, flexing of muscles is not needed. That's the direction I'm going. So I'll make more comment on that. So. so the gradual emergence of the global human rights culture in the last 50 years has achieved a certain level of international recognition for justice when there is an egregious violation of negative human rights. But severe poverty and radical inequality in the socioeconomic arena are still not recognized as urgent human uh, urgent human rights concerns. Uh, this um, quote unquote Holocaust of neglect perpetuates. This is Henry Schultz's famous term, this Holocaust of neglect. 
perpetuates deprivation, destabilization, and violence, creating the presumed need for preventive intervention, whereas preventive non-intervention, if practiced as a systematic antidote to the inequity and neglect in the world, can take us beyond the need for preventive use of force. Effective non-military alternatives in the case of terrorism, policing, surveillance, diplomacy, education, international cooperation, recognizing and meeting genuine grievances in the case of government persecution of its citizens, diplomatic pressure, non-violent coercive measures, including carefully developed sanctions aimed at the rulers rather than the ruled, economic and financial measures aimed at dictators and legal sanctions against powerful perpetrators. These methods, though likely to be effective, are not guaranteed to fully succeed and are not easy to implement in practice. But the same is even more true with preventive war. Uh, Understanding the idea, and this is the concluding notion, understanding the idea of just peace can help us understand the seeming paradox of indifference leading to intervention and proactive engagement leading to non-intervention. I, I, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I was uh, I was suggesting to, to Dean that we that we go on to David's comments and then we can have a discussion. And and sure. I know Dean has some more things to add, but sure. I think sure. it'd probably be best if we moved on. Sure. To ben. Okay, David. Thanks very much, uh, and and thanks so much, Dean, for coming along and for heroically persevering despite the best effects of. Uh, of, uh, of, of agents, biological agents, um, uh, uh, to, to intervene. Um, I should also just mention that this event, as well as being um, uh, hosted by ELAC, is also hosted by the Carnegie Council on Ethics and International Affairs in New York, uh, and particularly by the Global Ethics Network, uh, of which um, the three of us, uh, Dean, Cheney, myself, are, are members. So this event is also a part of the Global Ethics Network um, uh, set of, uh, of events and initiatives. Um, so very, very briefly, uh, I maybe just will make a, a couple of comments um, before handing over to Cheney and then going to discussion. And I wanted to, um, rather than commenting specifically on, uh, on Dean's proposals, because I'm very, very much in, uh, in support of the idea of moving towards some conception of just war. And I think it's very interesting just that this peace. is... Sorry, of just peace. I think it's very interesting that this is one of a number of contexts in which scholars are in many different ways trying to move beyond just war paradigms. So rather than responding specifically to that, I thought I would just um, try and situate very briefly the debate about preemption in the context of a broader debate about how we understand human rights, and particularly the conditions for forfeiture of human rights. So the assumption that I'm going to make is that any kind of war, preemptive or not unilateral, um, multilateral or UN authorized, that a basic precondition for any justified war is going to be that the persons, the enemy combatants that you use force against, do not, in the relevant sense, have the right not to have force used against them. So in a technique, so we say that they are liable to the use of force. So one of the one of the ways of phrasing the question about preemption then is to situate it in the context of a broader set of questions, which is about how ideas of proximity affect our conception of the rights that persons have and the conditions under which they lose or forfeit rights. So we might think about the, the, the questions about preemption as being questions about sp- um, temporal proximity, right? so the distance in time that an agent is from 
an attack. And we might want to look at this in the context of other proximity relationships and the effect that they have on the rights and responsibilities of agents. So we might want to think about three different contexts where these proximity questions arise. So one of these would be in the context of what we might call social relational proximity. So the idea here is that certain kinds of rights and responsibilities increase or have a greater stringency the closer our social relationship to that agent. So we're familiar with the idea that you can have greater responsibilities of care to our children than we do to strangers, greater responsibilities of care to perhaps our friends, colleagues, our co-nationals potentially than we do to strangers who do not share those relationships. Another set of issues may have to do with the effect that spatial proximity has to our rights and responsibilities. And again, there is some intuitive force to the idea that spatial proximity can indeed have an effect on the rights and responsibilities that we bear towards other agencies. And this, of course, was famously denied by Peter Singer in his, uh, in his paper on famine and affluence with the example of the child in the, um, in, in the fountain. And so the, the, the debate about preemption can be seen in the context of this as a, as a debate, as a, also a debate about the effects of proximity. But here, what we're worried about is not social relational, relational proximity, it's not spatial proximity, it's temporal proximity. What's different about this context compared with the other two are a couple of different things. The first one is that it seems to relate to negative duties, duties not to harm, in the way that relational proximity and spatial proximity, to the extent that they are persuasive, seem to only relate to duties to assist, right? So we don't believe that we have any less of an obligation not to actively harm somebody a very, very long way away from us in another country, someone who's not socially related to us, but arguably we do in terms of duties to assist. Now the temporal, the temporal proximity questions are interesting because they precisely relate to questions of duties not to harm. They're also different in the sense that there are two dimensions to the temporal proximity question. So we ask the question both about um, temporal distance after a wrongful attack, and we ask questions about which is the pre- and we ask questions which is the preemptive question about the, the proximity prior to the attack. Right. So, so in preemption, we ask: Are we permitted to use defensive force? a considerable period of time before the attack actually occurs. But there's a symmetrical set of questions, which is, what are our permissions to use, as it were, defensive force against a person who is responsible for a past wrongful attack? So you might think, for example, about the case of a person who wrongfully attacks me, he tries to kill me, but he fails to kill me, um, but leaves me with a dangerous, with with a wound. And a year later, that wound becomes infected, flares up, and it threatens to kill me. And the only way that I could save myself would be by killing the original aggressor, taking out his organ and transplanting it into me. So the question is, does the fact that this, the temporal proximity is now a year later, does that make a difference to the defensive rights? And intuitively, I think a lot of people think, yeah, it does make a difference. If you, if you can use force in that context, at the very least, perhaps the force is less that you can use, and maybe it's for different reasons as well. So that's proximity after the effect. Preemption is different again, because we're asking about the the temporal proximity prior to the attack. And one of the things that a number of people have said is that the proximity itself isn't doing any of the work. 
What's really doing the work is conceptions of necessity, or as Dean put it, conceptions of certainty. So it's something that Jeff McMahon has argued in a number of different places. Is look, the, the length of time itself is irrelevant. The, 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 the temporal proximity is just a proxy for whether it's necessary to engage in the defensive force against the person who, at some later point in time, will, in fact, harm you unjustly. Now, I think that can't be right. And one way to see that is to think about examples like this one. Right? So imagine that um, I'm looking at um, my nemesis through a high-powered telescope, and I can see that he's in my study and he's reading through a series of my papers. And one of those papers is a letter written by me to his wife proving that I've been unfaithful with his wife. And I know, based on his character, that as soon as he sees that letter, he is almost 100% certain, as certain as we can be, to fly into a homicidal rage and, in fact, to act upon that. So I know that in a very short period of time, he will, in fact, form and act upon a murderous intention. And I'm sitting there with my high-powered rifle, and I could shoot that person. So the question is, is necessity in that case sufficient? And most people would say, no, it, it's not. Right? Necessity itself is not all that's doing the work. There's something deeper there, which is about agency and responsibility. So one of the thoughts that you might have is, well, the temporal condition is in part a requirement that there is a genuine act which is sufficient to ground responsibility for the unjust harm in the agent against whom one uses defensive force. Now that's again, in a way, a form of skepticism against the idea that it's proximity itself alone that's doing the work. But I think it still gives a closer reading to that than the one that ties it particularly to necessity. And one of the worries that you might have particularly about um, notions of preemptive or preventive war in this case is that the agency and responsibility requirements, if that's what we think they are, seem very, very marginally and problematically to be met in cases of preemptive certainly preventive, and, and I think even in many cases a preemptive war. Because we might worry here about whether what you have is preemption against, to put it crudely, the wrong moral agents, right? So you have a state that is engaged in some forms of active preparation for a wrongful aggression, let's say, against a, an, another body. Um, now, we, we ask the question then, well, who, who amongst the agents within that state have taken the steps sufficient to assume responsibility for a wrongful attack, such that they might be uh, appropriate objects of, of defensive force? Well, it seems pretty clear that the agents that we're going to identify by asking that question will be, at the very most, members of the government and members of the senior leadership, right? The, the ordinary members of the, the armed forces are doing what they always do. They are training, preparing, in a state of readiness. But those, if we think about it, the model of a criminal conspiracy, they don't seem to have taken that active step. Right? They, they look like, in a sense, the person reading through the letter. We may have reasonable certainty that they will, at some point in the future, be actively involved in a wrongful attack. But until they themselves have taken that step of agency, it seems very, very hard to understand how they themselves could have that liability to defensive force. Let me leave it there, and um, maybe pick up some of those things. Well, um, we wanted to um, invite comments. Uh, I'll begin with one or two of my own. 
I think that there are very interesting philosophical issues about preemption and prevention. Uh, you run into almost all of them in domestic law in the United States, in the law of self-defense uh, involving what's called the battered spouse issue. And these are cases where women have good reason to believe that their life is in danger and how much can they act, in particular can they use lethal force uh, against someone without an imminent threat, et cetera, et cetera, as preventive or preemption. So I, I think the issues that David is raising and has raised in the literature about the, the rights and liability to attack are fascinating issues. Uh, I, I have to say, quite frankly, they have nothing to do with international affairs as far as I can see. Um, uh, the problem that uh, people who believe in preventive war or even preemptive war have is giving us many examples of where we can, in the most minimal sense, agree that it was justified. Interestingly, when you study the battered spouse problem, almost every case you read about that is one where you're sympathetic to the spouse on some level that, that she had good reason to act as she did. The problem is, is that the discussion of preemptive war and preventive war is now under the shadow of the invasion of Iraq. Um, uh, and uh, someone, it seems to me, to make a case for it, is going to have to show why this is not just something that we can imagine to be justified, but can be justified in the real world. Because the way the discussion often goes is, well, assume that the president is not George W. Bush, but an enlightened, nice guy with only good intentions. Assume that the U.S. military is not the institution that it is, it's something that has only uh, justice on its side, assume that we have perfect knowledge of the threat, and assume that the sea has turned to lemonade, as San Simai urged, okay? Uh, uh, we have rules like this, like no prevention, because we live in the real world. Uh, we have rules about police not doing things because we live in the real world. And, and I think that's, that's part of the debate here, is how much some of these domestic arguments map onto the international case. Uh, I think Dean's suggestion is, is of just peace is great. It seems to me that what he's basically suggesting is uh, disconnecting sovereignty from armed violence. Uh, the modern state system arose with the notion of what it meant to be a sovereign state, just was to be able to employ armed violence. And it seems to me that we're moving actually not towards a world, I, I, I think we, we still need sovereignty, but what we're moving towards is a world in which sovereignty is disconnected from armed violence, and that's part of what I hear in the kind of federalist model that Dean suggests, and that seems to be very attractive. So with that, I'll invite comments.